0: Hi there. I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. And on this episode of the podcast, I am joined by special guest, Anthony Hauck of Hypar. And he joins me to talk about making the mark you want to make in your career, pursuing something that feels ultimately more valuable, shared goals and value propositions in AEC, and so much more. Before we jump into that, let's connect the dots of Anthony's trajectory. Back in the latter 90s and early aughts, he was once the IT director and principal at Einkorn Yaffe Precot Architecture and Engineering, where he led the transition from AutoCAD to Revit, which was but a little tiny baby app at the time. After working in the profession proper, Anthony spent over a decade at Autodesk, where he was the director of product strategy and led product R&D for the AEC Generative Design Group, where he was on the team that originated Project Fractal, which was a cloud computational optioneering extension for Autodesk Dynamo, among other high-profile projects. After Autodesk, Anthony founded Black Arts Consulting, which was focused on the application of advanced computational technologies for generative design in architecture, engineering, and construction practice. And that brings us to his current role, where Anthony is serving as the chief operating officer at Hypar, where their goal is to improve the built environment through better tools for architectural design, engineering, construction, and facility operations, and I am a huge fan of what Anthony and team are doing over there. So obviously, he seems to be pretty good at reading the crystal ball because he's made some really great bets in the last 25 years. And as always, that is easier looking backwards than forwards. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Anthony Hauck. How are you doing? Well, you know, not too bad. Got your business suit on, just like me, the black t shirt.
1: Yeah, you know, I was uh I, I listened to your uh, conversation with, with Brian Ringley. Uh, it's a little lost on the the audio audience, but I'll say I, I brought a couple of different coffee cups. Uh, <laughs> as part of the shout out. So my my personalized RTC mug. So shout out to personalized. Oh, right. Nice. And then I thought, you know, maybe I would just steadily keep picking up the the billionaire tears mug. Um,
0: That's and awesome. Then,
1: and then I just, I just got this wonderful thing from uh, my my father in law for Christmas. He gave me four of these mugs, which are impossible to understand. I have those. Do you have them? Calamity oh my god, wear. the calamity yeah, so wear mugs. Folks, they're amazing. Yeah, for folks who are listening, uh, this this these are the things could be worse mugs, and they look from far away like these beautiful, you know, Chinese mugs but the design on them is all about various calamities uh befalling the town like zombie poodles and robots i'll put a so, link to
0: it i'll put a link to that in the show notes because yeah you really have to get up close to appreciate the the uh the different calamities that are presented on the mug and it, yeah. it is one of those things exactly like from far away it's like oh that just looks like a really nice you know yeah. finely detailed mug that you've seen a bunch of and then you get up close and you're like wait is that a ufo is that a is that a a, a sea monster and, and it's it's really fun it's a it's you know great, i got
1: i got no setup from my father-in-law for this and he wasn't he just dropped it off and so i opened it up and i'm like what what an odd gift like what? oh yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> my wife got them for my birthday one year yeah
1: oh brilliant
0: fantastic and and, and what's funny is we've had people over not recently i'll, I'll say but um to and, and notice what they are and know exactly what they were as well so these these things do have kind of a a reach beyond the what i would expect them to have so pretty yeah, cool like,
1: like an underground uh devotee yes, uh, yes. constituency it's, it's great <laughs> yeah. i wish i'd known about them before but what, is it, what is it, was a nice christmas surprise
0: that's awesome so i, I you you showed your your RTC mug. I, I'm trying to think the last time that I saw you in person was probably in Seattle.
1: Uh, that sounds probably correct.
0: At the Hypar Lab class that you and Ian put together where you were frantically running around helping people. <laughs> yeah,
1: that was, that was that was the class where everything went south on us, isn't it? Um, Yeah. And, and uh, you know, interesting anecdote about that. For, for folks who weren't there and didn't hear about it. RTC or in this case, built had centralized all their desktops onto servers. Right. And one of the four servers went down and took about two, two classrooms, I think at the time with us. And we didn't bring it down. It was actually the class, the class next door. And, uh, Ian was teaching the class and I, I basically strode up to the podium replaced his laptop with mine that had everything ready to go, plugged everything back in, and we kept going. <laughs>
0: and I think you had to hotspot off your phone, if I'm not
1: mistaken. Yeah, yes. And then, right, and then the internet stopped. And so I walked, up to my, I walked up front with my phone with a hotspot and plugged that laptop in, and we kept going. And I, The the funny thing was, uh, for folks who, who haven't spoken at that conference, there's always a, all the speakers get together at the end and talk about how the conference went with the, the conference management, and and we we actually got kind of cited as the the never say die class <laughs> because we just kept throwing more and more devices up there to keep going.
0: Nobody ever threw their hands up in the air and said, "I I give up." Nobody said that. I mean, it was just like, okay, here's a problem. Here's a solution. Here's another problem. Here's another solution.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just you know after uh, a- after you've done these things for a number of years, like you've just seen it all. All go wrong. I, I was actually at a, a data conference. You know, nothing to do with AEC directly. But I was at a, a data science conference once, and somebody had all their slides, you know, up on the cloud and couldn't connect. And so, and there's literally a room of like 800 people waiting for this guy to start, and he doesn't know what to do. And I did the same trick. I took my phone up there and I connected it to him so he could do his whole presentation.
0: Isn't it interesting how? Cell networks are more reliable than Wi-Fi. And when you really know you need something, you turn Wi-Fi off on your device and you yes. connect to the cell network. <laughs> yeah. cool. Who saw that coming? Like, like that is a giant flip that I think most people don't appreciate or really recognize as like, yeah, if you really want something fast and you want it now or maybe you're in that weird location or something technically went wrong in the space that you're in, it's like, yeah, turn your Wi-Fi off, connect over the cell network and you're going to yep. get what you need. I mean, it's insane. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah. But you know, like given given the choice if if it had to be either or, like I appreciate the the high reliability of the cell network.
0: It's actually, yeah, it's actually amazing that that and and I can't even really fathom how cobwebbed together that probably actually is and yet it still works, right? And it works reliably.
1: Well, you hear you hear the story, the old stories from uh, you know AT and T when you know it was yes. still Ma Bell, right? right. Long, uh, probably before some of the 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 birth dates of some of our listeners. But um, you know that from in inside AT and T, people were always surprised, like if they would pick up a receiver and hear a dial tone. Probably most people don't even know what the dial tone is anymore. But right. you know. Um, but yeah, the engineers who are always keeping it running with the, the chewing gum and bailing wire.
0: <laughs> yep. 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 I w I just had a video in my, in a, a YouTube, it was a talk that I gave to AIA Palm beach. I put it on YouTube just last week. Um, and I have in there a video of these parents who say, okay, kids, you know, pull the box off underneath it is something you've never seen before. It's a rotary phone and it's like. You have four minutes to dial this phone number and they had it written on a legal pad and he just throws it down and they're like, That's it? And he's like, Yep, that's it. And and it was it is a comedy of errors, right? Because nobody knows what a dial tone is. It and, and it's funny because like even three quarters of the way through the four minute video, the mom is like, You pick it up, you hear the dial tone, right? And and I'm just like thinking, those kids have no clue what that even is. But but even their mom is, is there with this embedded knowledge, It's like everybody knows what that is, and, and they didn't. And, and so I, I kind of started to relate that back to the way tech is changing architecture right. and how there's a lot of this embedded knowledge by people who've been in the business for a really long time and just have these, these knowns because they're well ingrained. And yet, I mean, especially now where people are all working in isolation, There's so much information not being passed around or just being, I just expect that you know this stuff. I expect you learned it. I expect you picked it up at some point. But the fact is they didn't, right? And so I really feel like there's a lot of um, discontinuity happening right now. It's just like there's so much knowledge transfer not happening because we're just not in offices where people can overhear stuff like this that is just kind of floating around all the time inside the office
1: yeah and it's uh that we're not all in the office right now being coming at the same time where so many people are retiring out of the industry um is going to be kind of a a, a double whammy on us worse i think than we experienced after the 2008 uh economic downturn right because of course um uh, you know anybody who's In the professions knows that we opened up a big demographic hole um Mm -hmm. in the profession when a lot of people left because it wasn't the work and they never came back right yep (laughs) and so and it's gonna happen again and so um you know phil phil bernstein to you know do more you know shout outs to to friends you know he has uh written about this uh in his book uh you know architecture design data Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things he was talking about was that it took, uh, I think, about ten years for billings to come back to the pre two thousand eight levels, but they came back with fifteen percent fewer people involved in the profession. So, of course, you know it's it's in the interest of of all of us people in the automation game to say, oh, that must have been you know Revit or whatever or some form of automation that was getting. Um, getting firms back to that level with fewer people—that may or may not be true—but um, that's going to happen again, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because one one thing that that I observed after the last downturn that I, I'm really so far have yet to see disproved is the the need for design and construction and engineering. All that seems to be let's call it a constant. Mm-hmm. and what happens in economic downturns is that need doesn't go away it just gets deferred and so we saw that coming out of the last uh recession where there was all this pent up demand and nobody could keep up afterwards and then and there was just this enormous amount of work that suddenly got released and you know persisted until recently right and i believe that demand is building up again and we're going to be end up responding to it probably with fewer trained people, both losing them at the upper end because they're retiring or losing them at the lower end because people don't see an opportunity in the field. And what do we do? And it's not a question that has one answer, right? It's a constellation of answers you have to bring to bear on that.
0: Yeah. So I'm starting to see an inroads into a a topic here and uh, you know, it has to do with high par and, and codifying expertise. Although, I think the kind of expertise that you're talking about right now is not necessarily the kind of thing that you would encode in a high par function, but there are many other stars in this constellation where people are looking at those types of things like upcodes, for instance, you know, right. uh, where, where you can codify knowledge of the built environment in lots of different places. And I think what this to me kind of is pointing back to the deficiency of knowledge capture within AEC and transference of that intentionally to the younger generations so that, and I think this also ties into Hypar, this idea of not having to start from scratch again. Why aren't we better at doing that? Why aren't we better at capturing knowledge so that the next generation is in a better off starting position when it comes to launching their career, launching the next project, building a better business, building a different business, potentially, right? I, there's there's a lot to kind of pick apart and go after there, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and, and this is kind of the thing, you know, back um, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was working for uh, a firm called Einhorn Yaffe Prescott, kind of as the sort of main tech jockey before I, I became the IT director, I got a call from our CEO at the time who said, you know, there's this company out here in Boston named Charles River software and they're working on this thing. And I I think you should really look at it. And I said, well, you know, Cal, if they've got anything good, Autodesk is going to buy them. (laughs) And so, but I'll, I'll be happy to look at it. And I looked at it and literally within 10 minutes of working with it, I thought someday this thing is going to tell me when I violated local building code. Someday. (laughs) And twenty years later, right. <laughs> I still don't have that. Right. Um, and you know, it's, it finally drove me to the to the point of desperation. Right, felt like I had to start my own company. Which, um, as you know, anybody who like dropped in, I, I think probably at the very last public panel I did knows, I never ever wanted to start my own company. And, but eventually you sort of run out of alternatives <laughs> on, on on trying to realize a vision
0: yeah and and i mean that that's another attitude that we see a lot in and i'm sure it's not limited to aec but somebody else is going to do that right i mean it's it's very much a i'm going to continue to do what i do because you know comfort because expertise because of all these things but i think a lot of times if if you don't have that motivation yourself you're just thinking somebody else We'll probably take care of that. And that that's a majority of people.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I'll have to say, like, I was sitting in that majority of people. Sure. And yeah. then, you know, there, was, there were certain problems that I kept running into as an IT director. First among them was, gee, I'd really like to use Revit to collaborate with one of our other offices. Uh-huh. And when it didn't seem that that answer was going to be forthcoming from Autodesk, I joined Autodesk. <laughs> And so, and then started the Revit Server project, and that eventually turned into Collaboration for Revit, which became whatever it is today, BIM three hundred and sixty collaboration, or whatever. Whatever the they name
0: changes called. all the time, right?
1: Yeah, but we we all know what it is, right? It's right. let's let's use Revit together in remote locations, which you know I'm I'm sure that's gotten to work out. So it's it's gratifying to see uh, that happen, but it just seems that sometimes. You can't just wait, right? You have to. And and I think that we're seeing that around the AEC industry right now. And and I won't credit any particular factor for, for pushing this, but clearly a combination of factors have caused a number of people to begin startups inside AEC because we just saw this kind of explosion of them in the last five years.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And there are many factors, but I think we're all feeling this evolutionary pressure, let's call it, to move our whole industry into something new. Nobody's really sure exactly what that is. Obviously, at Hyper, we're hoping to be an important part of it. But part of the premise of our company is that we don't want to be it, <laughs>
2: um,
1: and and I think that's that's something that comes out of the software uh, community generally. You know, people in the software industry generally try to build on each other's success. Yeah, um, there's uh, usually a tighter and more rapid focus these days on what the actual differentiating value in your company is, and then you go and try to assemble the rest of the things you need from other sources. And I think that's a very healthy impulse. And the thing is, we have the genes for that in AEC. That's how we operate, but it's just a much slower pace, right? But we don't have, or it's it's the rare firm, like, you know, you can look at your your AE comms and your Halliburtons and whatever, who have all the vertical expertise in-house to do anything you want. Right. Um, but, for the most part we 're still assembling these these ad hoc joint ventures or even just contractual relationships to deliver what is specialized expertise and combination right and so you know what one of the things that um in Kio, my partner and I talked about is can we replicate that way of delivering value currently in the industry with a lingua franca is everybody sends around files or drawings for some way that allows people to share automated expertise in a way that protects their IP, but also lets them collaborate in the same way they do on projects today.
0: Yeah. So something you said earlier was what I would love to go back to before we kind of get it. I I would love to talk to you about kind of the the short-term evolution of Hypar and what we've seen happen in the last couple of years. But going back to what you said earlier about deciding to go off and do this yourself, I mean, I feel like a lot of people are just waiting for permission and probably seeing other companies do it at least somewhat successfully gives them enough permission to justify themselves going off and doing this. But I think ultimately it comes down to choosing yourself to actually go off and do that and not waiting any longer for permission. What was that process like for you? Did it really take kind of seeing... Another talent that you could pair with, or maybe that's multiple people to pair with, to really feel like you had enough to do something, or was it something that you were prepared to do by yourself, no matter what? And if other people were along for the ride, cool.
1: Yeah, I, actually, it, it was kind of the latter. Um, you know, I, I've had I've had a certain vision of what the intersection of computation and AEC could look like. For some time, and I'll, I'll say, you know, it, it didn't have the same shape years ago, but it just seemed that, you know, as I kind of alluded to very early, I was thinking about, you know, shouldn't this thing essentially, if it can corner me a wall, why, why can't it tell me about building code or solar analysis or all these other things, right, mm-hmm. which are computationally accessible in theory? And so there was just a point where I realized that the kind of approach required to bring a solution like that to bear was not going to come from any single company. Just because the problem is so big, um, and there are, once you start looking at it, so many of them, right? And so the only, the only response you can have is like you have to find some way to marshal the industry, yeah, right. And so you don't marshal the industry necessarily from inside a very large competing corporation with a, a funnel to try to bring people to commit wholly, right, to, to a product line. You you have to accept the idea that there's the the problem being so big solutions are going to come from every direction. And the question is, as the question has been for literal decades in our industry, like, yes, those in practice know that these solutions come from every direction and there are people just dedicated to trying to weave them, weave them all together. And so, you know, for me, as I said, I never really wanted to start a business, but I wanted to realize a vision and, frankly, for the younger listeners, who will probably be almost all of them (laughs) at this point, you know, you, you look at your career and you're like, there are so many working years I have left and the idea is very big and is going to take some time. So it's either decide to hope that someone executes on that and on this and help them where you can, or try to do it yourself. So, um, you know, I, I went through one at one point in my career, I was in kind of the tail end of construction because I worked for a millwork company uh, for about three years, actually during the the earlier recession in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't much architecture work. And, you know, when I uh, when I hit my 30th birthday, as I usually do around a birthday, I take some time off and think about, you know, where do I want to be? And I decided that, you know, I, I really didn't want my epitaph to be, he drew 30,000 cabinets. And so, um, you know, I, I literally came back from vacation vacation and quit blindly, no job (laughs) because I, I just needed to, you know, pursue something that felt more valuable to me. And, um, I, you know, I wouldn't say my, this transition was anywhere near, near as abrupt or dramatic, but, um, Uh, but those are the kind of personal choices you make around your career about like, what kind of mark do you want to make? And, you know, I, I I just want to emphasize as I often do when I say stuff like that, uh, the world really needs people who like, (laughs) who like do the right operational work every day and contribute to a larger cause. And um, I would not wish entrepreneurship on anyone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, it's a, it's an interesting point. I was thinking like, yeah, when you just said you you quit blindly, like not recommended, right? It's, it's, yeah, one, no. it, it's it is not for everybody. And I think it le- it does lead to a lot of startups. It leads to a lot of failed startups, whether that's architecture or technology or whatever. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It, a lot of times there's kind of that disenfranchisement with the establishment that leads to, I am mean, gonna I can do this better. And, but what you don't realize is all the things that you don't do, right? That everybody else is doing because they're yeah. really good at it and because they love it. And then therefore you get to focus on the things that you can do really well and the things that you love. Um, it It is a, a much different road. It's a much different path to forge, right? Having to kind of start this up and do it all yourself or find the right people to do it with you over the long haul.
1: Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, you know, uh, my, you know, my inclination is always, you know, look around, look around for the organization that's, you know, Close to what you're trying to accomplish, and then you know try to shape the course toward the goal you see, right? Mm-hmm. And finally, it just seemed it would be much faster with less distraction to first go out on my own, then end up starting to consult to uh, Ian, who had alone started up Hypar, and then you know eventually we decided uh, to make honest people of each other and like go into partnership. But yeah, I, I think the, the way for me anyway, and actually the thing I would recommend to folks is, you know, start from the place where you, you either want to be or where you want to take something and where you want to see things end up. And through that lens, try to figure out what are the steps to get there. And mm-hmm. you will be wrong to begin with, but you will, in theory, correct course if you have this kind of constant idea of what you would like to see happen.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and now, I mean, honestly, you and Ian and Matt and Andrew and Tyler and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you guys have, you're building a team of people who are doing, who are, do have a vision and you are attracting, I think Ian said it one day, we're not just building a team, we're building the team. (laughs) And, and like, it's boasting, but it's honest boasting. Like you guys have attracted top talent because of that vision and because of that focus. Like you said, like you've limited distraction by starting this thing. Um, you may not ultimately know where you're going. Like you know, you're a piece, of, you, you know that you're a puzzle piece. You're not the puzzle. And it seems to me like you guys have really inspired a group of people with the work that you're doing. And now you've created a potential avenue for others to join that charge. And do it with you or do it adjacent to you um, and work together to solving this much bigger problem that's out there.
1: Yeah. And and look, I I think that's accurate. And I wouldn't want anybody to interpret uh my reflexive modesty <laughs> as not indicating that we have a great team. Mm-hmm. During our our holiday party, like I, I really just end up thanking all of the folks who have joined our team. Because they're making, they're making a bet with us and they're all so talented and they could go so many places, but they believe in the vision and they want to see it happen. Mm -hmm. That said, they're not the only team, you know, in AEC who have these, this vision and are doing great work. And part of what, what we're trying to do is to serve teams like us who have a vision and want to get it out there for people to use and would like to do it as fast as possible. So we spent a lot of what we spend time on is trying to make sure that folks who have an idea don't have to learn all kinds of ancillary technologies and procedures and et cetera just to get their idea out there. And I think beyond the folks, you know, the professional software developers or even the professional Corporate software developers who just make internal uh, tools for delivery. There's also this whole like, you know, almost infinite backlog of, of fantastic work that's been done in academia. And, you know, apologies to the folks in academia, but for the most part, academics not very good in taking something to market. We've seen like a lot of hopeful stuff. It's just a different skill set to commercialize a great idea. Uh And so what we're trying to do is provide people with a means of rapidly commercializing commercializing a a good idea. Uh And uh, rather than impress some some poor intern somewhere on, you know, please figure out AWS so we can have a a cloud-based service. I mean, I'm not saying that anybody isn't smart enough to figure that out because they absolutely are. But you know, we don't ask anybody to refine their own gasoline either anymore, right? right. We've got the division of labor thing going on. And I think that division of labor can be well applied to providing people a platform that lets them deliver expertise as software without them actually having to build an entire tech stack just to try something out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because you think about like um, visual effects houses where they have this. Insane level of custom software development happening in every single one of them that is completely proprietary and completely different than the one down the street in Hollywood or wherever they are, right? Probably in Canada, yeah. right? But it's, it's, uh, it, they take that job very seriously. They, they use an off the shelf product as a framework or a platform, but then it probably, when I, I'm guessing, when you open it up and you go to work there and you, you open it up on your computer, it looks nothing like that original piece of software for the most part. Architects tend to seem to want to stay with off-the-shelf software. And obviously, there's lots of little customizations, and there's little add-ins, and there's all these things that kind of get stacked on top of it. But for the most part, you're still using that base application. Do you feel like, I mean, I'm just guessing that one of the reasons that you guys really started Hypar was because it's like, this thing's been around, like you said, for 20 plus years. You were there in the beginning for the most part at some point it becomes like so many band-aids on top of band-aids with that old code base that it's like what we actually need to go out to the side we need to start a new thing and we need to be able to move a lot faster and you talked about architecture aec moving slowly earlier i mean is that a big driver is just like the speed at which and the urgency or or is it something else uh,
1: i guess a, a couple of thoughts yeah. um you know, uh, there's, there's been a lot of press over, over the years about like old code bases and, you know, how they are necessarily difficult to bring forward into new paradigms. And to a degree, that's true. Um, I will say, you know, with the inside knowledge that I have that the Revit team invested enormous amounts of resources in replacing fundamental systems inside Revit. Um, you know, graphic system was replaced at least twice, <laughs> for example,
2: and mm-hmm.
1: a lot of work. So software companies do make these investments to keep things relevant. There's been an enormous amount of work, and I only I only choose Autodesk examples because I have kind of direct experience with them. Yeah. but I know every software company is doing this where they they sort of look at their code base and they invest in keeping it current and highly maintainable because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. it's in their interest to do so. However, I'll also say that you know when a whole bunch of new technologies comes along and becomes practical to employ, it is not the easiest thing in the world to try to adopt those into an existing code base. Mm-hmm. So, to your point, you know when. You start out with this idea of cloud computation, and you have to do everything yourself, <laughs> to the point where companies you know, build their own data centers yep. and figured yep. out how to manage data centers so they could do, you know, 27 steps later, deliver a piece of software. To today, when a lot of things we can do with off the shelf, and I'll just say as much as possible, Hyper is off the shelf. Software and a lot of what we're doing is putting those in a certain combination that is helpful for AEC. You know, there's there's a, a point at which you can't take the old software easily into a new environment. Right. But that's not to say that the old environment isn't also uh, um, isn't valuable. I don't, mm-hmm. for example, I don't think, uh, and so many years later, <laughs> that uh, Carl Das would mind me relating this, but. Um, You know, early on when Autodesk talked about where, you know, we we need to really move to the cloud strategically, I asked him, uh, and it was in one of those big, you know, presentations where the executives get everybody kind of, you know, up to date on things. And I asked him, well, you know, do you see us entirely abandoning the desktop? Um, And his answer was to pull his phone out of his pocket and say, you know, I walk around with more computation power than took astronauts to the moon why would I ever abandon this? And so, you know, that's that's when I knew that even as an IT director way back when, you know, I had this idea that there should be this thing that I, I started calling ubiquitous computing, then IBM came along and called it grid computing, and everybody had different names for it. But essentially, you know, what we see on the internet now, right, there's a lot of local computation that happens for high interactive stuff. And a lot of, A lot of interaction is shunted up to the cloud for more lazy processes that might need more computational power or different kinds of parallelization, collaboration, you name it, right? And so we're just a little bit along that transformation. But if you want to take advantage of that, the best way, if you can afford it, is to look at the available technologies and then try to create a system around what's there. For example, if I were to go science fiction here, like if 10 years from now, let's say there's DNA computing, right? Uh, It's not going to be the easiest thing (laughs) to take our software as exists now and transport it onto a DNA uh, storage and computation environment. We'll have to reassess. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think you know the history of technology you've always seen is we never we don't really abandon stuff. It's very, very rare. We actually just add to it. I can still buy a kerosene lamp, and it is useful in certain contexts. Yeah. That use hasn't vanished. So I, I think we're always gonna see this kind of, of uh adaptation, but we're also gonna see past technology being allocated to what it's really good at while newer technologies are allocated to maybe things we don't actually apply technology to yet, you know, for, you know, to, to kind of harken back to, um, for example, Brian's work at Boston Dynamics, like, you know, humans walk around to check out a site <laughs> to see whether progress is happening in an appropriate fashion. They're talking about automating that. You know, that's just not something we would have considered a human, um, an activity you could exclude humans from, right? right? And now we're thinking about maybe there's a way to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's not as cut and dried as, you know, I've got this, I've got an old code base and, you know, geez, it doesn't really adapt very well. I think software that exists often does a very good job to what it was meant to do. But the question always is, what is software not doing? that is becoming practical to do. And I think all, all your listeners could come up with a hundred examples yeah. drawn out of, uh, you know, some of the machine learning advances we're seeing and other kinds of connected computing that are coming up with solutions. I think probably the protein folding problem, which is kind of a combination crowdsourcing and computation problem that was uh, solved a few years ago um would be one of those examples. If people aren't familiar with this, you can you can fold proteins all kinds of different ways. And if you fold a protein right, it actually turns uh, it can turn into a good drug to attack some kind of illness. Mm. And you can spend, you know, lots of lots of computing hours trying to find the right folded protein, or you can have lots of people try to find the right fold. And a combination of that led to a, a solution on a particular project a few years ago. So you know these are the kind of problems that people can think about in different ways because they have different types of resources. In this case, a combination of computation and collaboration. And so you know to draw all that back up to what we're doing inside Hyper, we see the same opportunity, right? We see there's an opportunity to enhance decisions people are trying to make about buildings with a combination of Uh, computation, contribution from the whole industry towards some sort of uh, computation to solve a problem, but also collaboration, because there's many opportunities to have people weigh in on these kind of generative design environments in a way that adds those human gestures on top of a computational solution and actually combines the two.
0: Which is kind of the, the magic... Of design, right? I mean, that's, that's really what separates, I think, what we see ourselves as architects doing from the rest of the building industry. And it shouldn't just be a means to further efficiency and productivity, although those are great side effects and benefits, but that's not what makes the built environment special. And that's not what gives it the potential impact that it truly has upon people.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, w- one of the things I've noticed, I mean, folks listening may know that I was originally trained as an architect and, and worked as one for a while. I think actually the architecture profession undervalues itself in a very key way because, you know, a lot of what we see what firms do, or at least the, the kind of practical business effect is it's almost like they're just selling highly skilled labor. And I think that undersells the value of the profession. Because really what you're doing, um, at least in my experience in architecture, is you are you are discovering and codifying a value system that is surrounding the project you have been asked to deliver. And you you see this when you sit down with clients and they have an idea of what they want. But they don't really know necessarily what that means, or even whether they should want it. <laughs> um, right. So um, I think a lot, what, what a lot of architects do, and it's and it's it's the set of soft skills that I think unfortunately are, are very undervalued in business in general, is to construct this, this metaphorical edifice of what is valuable within this project. Amid all the stakeholders in that project, and that includes the architects themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have a successful project, the occupants feel as if a value system has been instantiated successfully. Mm-hmm. Whatever mm-hmm. that value system is, I mean, it can be something as simple as we need to move, you know, 150 cars every hour through this Starbucks window, but these are all values, right? And so, Um, I think, you know, the design professions in general um, and architects in particular have this very difficult and when successful, like truly magical task of turning a value system into a physical artifact that's going to stand there for 50 to 100 plus years. Mm -hmm. And is, is kind of a monument to how people thought about a particular project at one time. Right. And uh, I just think it's a shame that, that, you know, people forget that, because I think that's why we all got involved in the building industry, really. We had these ideas about what what buildings could be, yeah, and we'd like to see them happen. And so we, we take on these different methodologies of, of trying to get there.
0: It is interesting, and to kind of illustrate that, one of those points earlier, a story that I've heard a few times within our company is that a large healthcare provider came with, you know, this program for an entirely new tower and they needed X number of this kind of space and Y number of that kind of space and et cetera, et cetera. And they said, well, let's take a look at your data. And we have various simulation and, you know, spreadsheets and all the things that we use as tools to basically analyze, you know, the data and, and vet it. Say, because like you said, like, Sometimes they're asking for something and they actually don't even know if they need it. it. It's kind of a, yeah, of course we need this shiny new thing. Of course we do, right? Because it's better than the other thing that we have. And usually it's in response to the thing that they already have. It's exactly the opposite of what we have. <laughs> That's what we need. And uh, the after the analysis happened, they actually said, well, what you think you need is not what you need at all. You do not need a new building. You need to move like these these walls in this existing building that you have. That's it. So the answer, first of all, can't always be a building, right? There's, it, and it shouldn't be that that wouldn't be the right thing to do. But to challenge those assumptions and to ask the right questions, and and again, like bringing this back to the value proposition of what architects can do is they they go from this really amorphous, and we talked I talked about this with Reg Prentice in a previous episode as well, of, of going from uncertainty to certainty. And that is not an easy task. And that is what we are trained to do. And through that set of decision-making processes that are sometimes in series, sometimes in parallel, sometimes linked to each other in really weird ways, and one change over here drives three changes over there, but ultimately you get to the end and it's not easy to figure out how you got there. Right. But you come up with this solution that... It is extremely valuable. And I think the the, the downside that we see is people spend ninety percent of their time, probably more now, in buildings and it's just backdrop. It's just background, right? It's not it doesn't feel special in most cases, right? Mm-hmm. And so that I think is why often it is forgotten about what it actually takes to make something like that happen. It's just it's just kind of it's it's like that that teenager with you know, <laughs> who who just is very they want what they want because that's what they want and they're not they're just entitled about it and everybody just kind of has these entitled expectations about what these built these spaces are going to do for us and they don't they don't treat them as the special things that they are and that is very hard for architects to ever get that point across because there's so much bad stuff out there too right so you're fighting against that as well
1: yeah i mean one one thing that happened when autodesk moved down into seaport uh, from Waltham, of course. That was that would be the, the third office I had I had occupied mm. uh, in Autodesk Boston area. And one one change that happened is we noticed when we got into the new office, there were no waste baskets by the desks, and every, there was a lot of like kind of like muttering of uh-huh. you know
0: aesthetics, <laughs> no waste. Our office went through this exact same scenario. It's hilarious. <laughs> and, and
1: of course, what there were were these you know kind of centralized. Right. Dust bins, you know, places. And then I noticed after maybe three weeks or so of going to the office every day that every time I had to throw something out, I'd go over to one of the waste bins and, you know, throw it in. And then I'd have a conversation with somebody else who was throwing something away in the waste bin or getting coffee nearby or something like that. And I realized this was an architectural choice
2: mm-hmm.
1: that was for a very specific purpose. To get people collaborating in the hallways by making them get out, get up from their desks in, frankly, you know, a, a, a sector full of introverted people, right? right? right. And mm-hmm. so, um, I, I I think these are the kind of subtle things that choices in architecture uh, can influence around human behavior that. It, it, very few people really actually consciously notice, but they they make an enormous difference in people's daily life.
0: Yeah, it's like putting a coffee bar on one floor instead of every floor, or putting the bathrooms on the other side of the building, like Pixar, yeah, is known for the the example that that you made me think of was the Salk Institute and how oh, yeah. <laughs> the labs are open, yeah, like, and the culture is um, by by creating open labs. By not letting everybody have their own office and being able to lock their door and cover up their windows and putting a lot of glass partitions in and making it very transparent and observable by somebody walking down the hallway or whatever, they, through the architecture, helped create a culture. Architecture can't do it by itself, right? It can enable this kind of thing to happen, but it can't make it happen. But it enabled a culture of transparency and sharing to the point that people just leave their crap out so that other people can see it, because oftentimes you're going to have a good idea, but somebody else is going to come along and help make that a great idea. And it's a really interesting kind of success story, at least the way it's told by the docents at the Salk Institute, of of that culture that they have there that you don't find at many other labs, which is enabled by the architecture. And not just by Louis Kahn, who designed it, but by Jonas Salk and their collaboration together— and realizing that value that the architecture could bring to that environment to help solve the biggest problems, knowing that individual pockets of brilliance are, you know, very hard to find rather than, you know, like this this kind of collective of scientists who are all at the top in their field having the opportunity to take in and see and you know, let their subconscious mind work on something they might not even be fully aware of working on just because they saw it walking through the hallway and come up with amazing solutions. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here where it's environmental and not necessarily like right in your face. No one's telling you this, this story as you're the one working there, but it is happening in the background and it is kind of driving certain types of behaviors to raise the abilities of that entity.
1: Yeah, and you know, one one of my favorite stories, similar to that, is kind of on the other the other end of the spectrum of the sort of undesigned environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so during World War II, and if I have the number the building number right, building twenty at MIT was this overflow space, uh, you know, a temporary housing
2: mm-hmm. for
1: all the departments of the scientists that they couldn't fit in the other existing buildings, yeah. right? because you know during World War II, all all this technological expertise was gathered in certain places around the country to help the war effort. And so they had this overflow space and it was full of like chemists and biologists and technologists and the you know early computer scientists and like all these people who were from all these different sectors and they were in this one building. And the building itself, nobody since it was temporary, it lasted for like decades. But (laughs) since it was temporary at the time. No one cared what anybody did to it. Mm-hmm. So, if they needed to like start running cable to do an experiment or something, somebody would grab a screwdriver, punch a hole in the wall, and just run the cable, and no one cared. And you can trace a hundred inventions back to that group.
2: Wow. And
1: these were just people who would like sit down at the cafeteria and they you know they'd all eat at the same time because that's kind of what we all did in the 40s, right? And then, you know, they're eating and they would say, oh, I'm working on this problem. And someone said, you know, from a completely different sector would say, like, would say, Oh, I've got a problem like that, you know, in chemistry. And then all of a sudden you'd have this like biologist, and chemist, and you know, some statistician working on something together because they saw a congruence in their uh, in their work. And so you know these are the kind of things that 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 buildings influence. I personally believe that these are also the kind of things that can actually get codified into software, both from an analytical standpoint, but also from a proposal standpoint. Mm-hmm. The thing you can't codify into software is the complete project value system. And that's the very critical in contribution that all the humans are making, like the machine is giving you this thing, and someone has to decide whether it is good right for local definitions of good, right and that's the sort of you know when we in Hyper when we talk about this stuff, you know some of the things that we talk about you know down the road is the kind of codified expertise that we're trying to make easy uh, for folks to deliver, like that should be kind of like a team member for you. Mm -hmm. Much as, you know, you mentioned like, you know, you put things through Excel spreadsheets and this, you know, 40 years ago, that was a person, yes, right? Like you, that person, like you'd say like, we got all this, all this information. Can you tell us like what we should do? And someone would sit there and work it out on a piece of paper and tell you what you should do. Um, you know, hopefully, we can start moving people toward even tougher and higher order problems. Right. Because God knows we've got a lot of them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, if we even if we didn't have the this uh, pandemic and its aftermath, uh, we hope coming and all the design considerations that that's going to you know trot into everybody's um, uh, everybody's design sensibility. You know. we've still got this climate that's on its way to being something different. Right. And, you know, you think about places about, you know, near where I live in Boston, like seaports going to be underwater at some Mm. point. And, you know, we're going to have some mitigation for that, or we're going to do something completely different and not be there. And that's true of all kinds of places in the United States and around the world. We've got so much, you know, I forget the exact percentage, but, such a large population in the world is living proximate to rising seas. Now what? Yeah. These are design problems.
0: Yeah, and, and by you guys creating a platform that could potentially house that expertise so that lots of people could use it, I think it does really start to speak to the idea of being able to worry about or work on higher-level problems because you're not recreating all that stuff to just take care of that low-level subsystem stuff.
1: I mean, you know, just to throw, just to throw out a silly a silly kind of example. Does anybody really need to design a, a corner strip mall in America anymore? Right. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, it, it's a it's an equation, right? There's there's a certain ROI. There's a certain amount of of square footage you need to make that ROI.
0: We we that, did the parking lot function for that,
1: right? And <laughs> that implicates the parking <laughs> and, and all this, right? And these are all like this is a formula, right? And. Yep. You know, a lot of developers treat it like a formula successfully. Do we really need people like really scratching their heads over this? Or can we just accept that, that like, not everything is a unique design opportunity? It's, a, it's an instrument that we have to deliver and deliver the instruments in an automated way so that humans can focus on the things that, that really matter. Right. Right. The experience is low. I mean, it's interesting you say the SOC, the SOC Institute, it's one of my favorite projects mm-hmm. ever. Right. And you can see like there's, there's an order of magnitude improved experience in that project than there is in other similar institutions. There just mm-hmm. is. And I don't even know exactly what it is or how yeah. to describe it. Intangible. But it feels yeah. better. Yeah. You know, and like, wouldn't it be great if the humans could focus on stuff to make each other feel better and be more successful um, than blowing a lot of design time on solve problems?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what are you guys seeing at Hypar from the way that you're now assembling a team of expertise to deliver yeah. on that kind of ability, to give that ability to architects and people in AEC, beyond architects, obviously? I know you guys for the most part, started out as architects, but the problem is bigger than just architects. Architects are a piece of the timeline. They're not the entire timeline of projects. Obviously there's owners involved, there's contractors involved and all that stuff. So how are you guys assembling the team and and what are you excited about with the team that you have assembled to really start to deliver upon these ideas that that we're talking about?
1: I'd have to say, you you, you mentioned earlier that um, we sort of, Attracted a certain a certain team uh, to the company, and I think that's probably the most important uh, shared characteristic of everybody. They they share they share the vision. Like there really isn't a divergent idea of what we what we think the future could look like. Um, and of course, we as any company will. We'll have constant discussions about you know what's the best thing to do first and what's the best methodology to get there. But the, the, goal, the goal is shared. And one of the, the choices we made, um, Ian and I, before we hired anybody, um, you know, because we got a lot of advice when we started the company and people are like, well, you know, just outsource everything, you know, hire a team in, in Singapore or Eastern Europe or somebody and you know, just give them, give them things to do and they'll do them and you will get, get to a product. We wanted to go a different way. We wanted to uh, assemble a team that actually came out of the professions um, because we we don't want to be the sole carriers of of the vision, and we wanted that intersection of people who were technically inclined but really had their roots in trying to deliver real projects for real people, and it 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 saves. I think it saves a lot of mental effort um, for everybody because we're all, we're all coming out of the professions and we all have a kind of feel for what the problems are and how they can be approached. So I, I think it, there's not a lot of sitting down and explaining the profession. In fact, there's zero of, <laughs> of that. Right. And so, you know, what, what we find exciting um, about the team, it is that, that special intersection. Um, and I guess it's three things it's experience in the profession it's the technical inclination and it's the shared vision. Mm. And, and that's, that's how we find people really, um, much more than, you know, just putting out a, a call for, we need somebody with this specification.
0: Right. Yeah. It's fantastic to see how your team has developed, especially even just in the last year, I think at the last Autodesk University a little over a year ago, you guys had a little booth there. It was the three of you. It was you and Ian yep. and Matt, right? Yep. That was and, it. <laughs> and now uh, your team has grown at yes. least doubled, if not more, right? Uh, more.
1: Yeah. More we have more. eight people, now, including Ian and I. So, yes.
0: So, what are the things that, I mean, maybe just to wrap up here, what are the things that you guys are most excited about in 2021 around what you're doing at HyPAR for the AEC industry?
1: You know, uh, I I would say, hands down, the thing I'm most excited about uh, actually came out of um, Andrew Heumann, some people know, kind of pushing us in this direction. Um, We we haven't released it yet, but we have a a framework um, where you can not only generate a solution, but you can intervene manually into that solution and then have everything kind of catch up around it. Um in still in an automated fashion while retaining your intervention.
0: Nice.
1: And um we're we're super excited about that because um we had a lot of conversations about, you know, can you the old the old joke is like, oh, I'll push a button, I get a building, right? That yeah. goes all the way back to CAD, right? right. <laughs> you guys just do CAD guys, right? Um, but um what we know is that You can't ever capture everything you want to do in all your equations and logic, right? There's always some way you want to intervene to improve, again, because you can't capture that value system entirely, right? Um, You have to have a person there. And so I think what we're most excited about is to um, actually provide that environment where people can get like all this help from automated routines, but... They also get to correct it and have, start to have that sort of augmented design capability and delivery capability where the machine is always helping you, but you're still in command.
0: That's amazing. and And because I think, you know, coming from design myself, that's the point at which you must break the algorithm traditionally. And exactly. that, if you can avoid that, is an amazing feat because- Yeah, if you want to intervene in this piece of a facade or whatever that thing is that you want to put that intervention in and have it be different from the rest of everything that's going on and have it respond to that, that's a big deal. Because you don't have to, you know, quote unquote, bake it at that point, which then loses all the smarts to some level. That's That's a really big deal. So that is truly exciting
1: yeah, we we're, I mean, there's there's all kinds of little things we're we're constantly doing, but I think that that paradigm of the coupled up automated expertise with human expertise that we'd like to see happen, you know, setting aside like all the stuff we're doing to try to draw that expertise from the entire industry at once. But I think that that capability has, we think has the most potential to actually help move the industry forward as it relegates the routine. To computation and focuses on the unique as the human contribution, and it seems like the
0: unique could be another set of computation, right? Potentially. So, if if you like the what what's really interesting to me about this, just thinking about it on the fly here, is that you know traditional, even if you do work on a project that will potentially be repeated in the in the future, you still need the ability to learn from the process. And not start from zero again. Yes. Or let's not call it zero, but let's say, you know, you want, you don't want to have to go all the way back to the beginning because of these, these things you learned along the way. So it seems to me with, you know, maybe this is the beginning of actually being able to not have to go all the way back to put that new learned data back into the beginning so that everything then ripples from there. But you can go back a shorter amount of time and have those decisions update to give you that new output faster? Because, I mean, that's the beauty of stuff like this, right? We hope is that you learn along the way so that the next time you do it, it's better, it's faster, uh, and it has better outcomes. And it seems like you have to have a way where you don't always go back to the beginning to achieve well, that. Well, and
1: this is, this is the promise of a couple of things. Like 20, 25 years ago, this was a concept that was impossible to, to describe outside the scenario of a human learning something and getting yeah. better. At it. And that's one of the reasons we have an apprenticeship system in the profession. But um, now, with the example that Google started back when, and we know, you know, our the, the research results we get are "quote unquote" better <laughs> um, as we do more of them. We understand that systems can evolve to present to us better solutions. Now, I think you know to make that more than an exercise in taste the advantage we have is we can also start plugging in analyses that like actually give us a mathematical basis to assert something is better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that starts taking some of those, those drawbacks out of the equation where it's only pure human judgment. It's actually conveyable human judgment in the form of analysis. The danger I see in, in this kind of progression though, and you know, it's sort of classic futurist stuff to like, tell people what the dangers are of things that don't exist yet. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, the like, like a Google search, which shows you what you like because you like what you see.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. There's this possibility of epistemic closure around design. Now you could say that that's a problem or you could say that that's a style. (laughs) So, you know, uh, Stanislaw Shalug, who uh, was part of SpaceMaker and now is part of Autodesk through that acquisition. Like we we contacted him because he lives in Boston, and we we talked about this because he does a lot of machine learning mm-hmm. work. And you know the thing that he's put out in a paper is that we should not be afraid that the machines might have a style. That's that what they should have a style. <laughs> they should be making choices according to some set of sensibilities that the algorithm is trying to realize. the The thing for us as humans is. We don't have to choose an algorithm. We can yeah. choose any of them. Right. Right? We can choose them in combination. And that's, again, where our human judgment comes back in. And even if our algorithms have a style, we can choose among those styles and influence those styles by direct intervention.
0: Yeah, we should be actively designing that, right? Because it, it seems to me if you're going to be having a series of functions that are reusable by anybody... Yeah. You need a way to potentially differentiate yourself this way, and yeah. and that you do want to be in control of, right? Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like Facebook, or it's kind of like Twitter. They're both similar in this way in that everybody gets a different view of it. Everybody yeah. Yeah. has their view of it, and that's because of the things it knows about you. And it's not that—I'm not trying to be creepy about it. I'm not trying to say people know that stuff about you. They don't. Facebook knows that stuff about you. And, and in this case, I'm not equating Facebook with people. I'm just equating it as like, it, it is the AI in this case, right? It's mm-hmm. it's this thing that has put all these other things together to spit out something custom for you. And mm-hmm. that is a good side effect of that in many, at least some, some of the research shows, right? In that it is customized for you to be the most effective for you. In, in other words, it's not trying to show you stuff that you don't want. Right It's not trying to show you stuff that you don't like because it knows what you like, like you said earlier, you like what you like because you know what you like right it's It's that kind of a thing, so it seems to me like the algorithms and the the processes that you're talking about firms do have the capability to have control over that in a way that I mean it can learn through the process yeah. to create the firm's way of doing that thing, even though the underlying frameworks can be shared with other
1: people. Yeah. And of course, you know, we, I think everybody understands as they watch the operation of all these different services that, that you name, that it is possible to, through a series of recorded decisions to start predicting the decisions that someone will make. And that someone, as you say, could collectively be a firm's culture. Right. Right. And be that and the the trick will be of, you know, as you say, when you talk about breaking the algorithm, that's an algorithm too. Yeah. And so, you know, that's when you bring in new talent to break that algorithm if your buildings are starting to turn into routines.
0: Yeah, if it doesn't fit the solution that you need it to fit, right? You gotta modify it, basically what you're saying, right? You're forking it into a new algorithm. You're not you're not really breaking it potentially.
1: And, and it's kind of the difference between combining stuff and creating stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's not a clear line between those things. You know, I'll, I give you Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. you know, but I think to break a system, you need a human. And because all systems are limited, that's what we have to bring to the conversation. We have to bring that ability to break the system to find the right solution and not, not serve the process. Right, yeah. you know, the process yeah. is always there to serve us and are the betterment of our lives, right? And you know, and the betterment of our communities, right? And so, you know, any process that stands in the way of that—that's a process that's in need of modification or breakage, so that we have a better something, a better order comes out of that. And it's, it's this idea of punctuated equilibrium, right? Mm-hmm. You have this thing that kind of goes along, and it's fine, and it's working, and it's you know, stamping out your, your corner mall, you know, and then all of a sudden cars get smaller or everybody rides bicycles now or whatever it is. And it's just like, these solutions are just not worthwhile. And that algorithm is never going to understand that. Right. So, so now you need a human to come in and start generating the new thing that will take over from when we all drove cars up to the Starbucks. Window.
0: Well, this has been a long wrap up since I mentioned it earlier, but I do have yeah, right? one more question for you. Yeah. I know I can tell just from the stuff that you're posting. You're you're a, a voracious reader, and I haven't been asking my guests all, this very much lately. But do you have any recommendations for things that you're reading now that you find valuable to your own edification and growth?
1: Um, I usually have uh, a few books going. I'm gonna I'm gonna look over my shoulder here yeah. to see what's in my pile. I just started actually the uh the warmth of other suns uh which is about the migration north of uh a lot of the the black folks mid 20th century into the areas like Chicago and Detroit and all that um that's pretty interesting um I've got queued up uh the power broker uh mm-hmm. which is um about Robert Moses in New York which is this gigantic tome I haven't really taken on uh, anything like that since I read the prize uh, a number of years ago. If anybody hasn't seen that book, that's all about, you know, oil production and <laughs> the oil market. Uh, so those are kind of the, the, the I guess, fact-based stuff. Uh, and I just, I, I'm ashamed to say, uh, and my wife is appalled that I just, I finally read my first Steinbeck novel, <laughs> um, which, which is his last book, which is The Winter of Our Discontent. Um, and he won the Nobel Prize for literature for that one. And uh, I would highly recommend that if you you want a an idea about a certain sensibility in America. Um, Fantastic. I'll leave it at that. But right. uh, so, a couple of fact books and a, uh, a novel.
0: Fantastic recommendations. I really appreciate it, and and thank you so much for being generous with your time today. I feel like this was a fun conversation to have. And we covered a lot of ground. So thanks, Anthony. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G A B L M E D I A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.